You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. morning I'm uh, thrilled to be here and I'm thrilled you're here as we are kicking off this weekend a new message series entitled The Neighboring Way. We're going to go ahead and dismiss any 6th through 8th graders. We have a class designed for you. You can be uh, making your way to now in the student wing. Um, <clears throat> but for the rest of us, we're going to start this, this uh, new message series that not only deals with the messages we'll be talking about on the weekends, but also uh, the small group uh, material that we'll be covering throughout the week. And so we want to encourage you to make plans, not just to be here on the weekends during this series, but to participate in a small group that will cover this same material throughout the week. In fact, in the bulletin that you were handed as you came in, you'll see a listing. It's on a gold sheet, a listing of the small groups that are available. And also, as you go out the, the lobby, there's a pegboard with listing of those small groups. In fact, you can take a flyer. It's got all the information on there, and you can uh, have the contact info. And we hope you'll be a part of that because I'm, I'm excited about this series. I think it's a, a very important one for us as a church in fact, uh, I think it's so important that I made a trip home from Detroit last night just so I could be here to help launch this new series. Now, some of you might wonder, well, what have you been doing in Detroit? Well, I wasn't up there yesterday to watch the team up north. I wasn't up there for that reason. Or, nor I wasn't up there to watch the Pistons play or the Lions because they play today or, or this weekend. But I was up there to celebrate a very special little girl's fourth birthday. Uh, now, not only did I get to see this granddaughter, who's quite, got quite the personality, but also I got to see uh, my other granddaughter, uh, who I haven't seen for a while, and so she was there as well, so that was great, and we really, really enjoyed it. It was truly grand to be with them. You know, I love being around children, especially my grandchildren, but, but since I don't get to see them often, they don't live in this community, I... Uh, I like to get my fix being around other children as well that I can interact with. So we, uh, here at, the, at Southwest, we host the YMCA uh, preschool. And so one of the, the privileges of hosting their preschool is they allow us to do a devotional every week with those preschool children. So this week, uh, like other weeks, I, uh, once, a day, I, once a week I take a day and I go in there and I read from the Rhyme Bible to them, and, and I love interacting with three, four, and five-year-olds because you never quite know what they're going to say. So uh, this week we're reading from the Rhyme Bible and reading the story of Abraham and Sarah and their long-awaited baby Isaac. And in the middle of the Bible story, and, the, and you just you never know when the questions are going to pop up. This one little girl raised her hand and she said, "How are babies born?" Well. You know, that's, that's a tough question, so I thought, okay, let me see if I can explain this for a three- to five-year-old level, and I said, well, God blesses mommies and daddies uh, with babies, and, but yet the babies 
uh, are so small at the beginning that God has them grow inside their mommy's tummy for about nine months before they're born. And so I said, that's, that's how babies are born. And then she, she says, I know all that. She says, I want to know, how do they get out of their mommy's tummy? And um, I looked at the teachers to see if I could get some help. There was no help coming from them. They had no response. They were like, you're on your own on this one. And so I thought, okay, well, I started with, well, it's a mystery to me. I have to be honest with you. And then before I could say anything else, a little boy raises and he says, I know, I know. And I thought, this is going to be interesting. And he says, I know how they're born. He says, when the baby's ready to be born, all you have to do is push the belly button of the mommy and the baby pops out. And I said, well, that works for me. Okay, let's go with that explanation. So if, there's, if you talk to any of the preschoolers that go here and they've got this misunderstanding about the belly button, okay, I'm partly to blame for that, but I just thought that was good enough to, to go with. But, you know, kids have a way of helping you get things in perspective, whether it be uh, the privilege I have from time to time to spend time with grandchildren or whether it's spending time with the, the children here at the preschool. They just their innocence, their, their, their curiosity, and the questions they ask help you just get a perspective. Well, we're hoping this series helps us get a perspective of what we're all about. You see here at Southwest, our vision statement, and we call it our 2020 vision because we want to we rolled this out last year. We want to keep living in this and learning how to live it out in every way until the year 2020 is simply to be bridging the gap to those without Jesus so that no one has to live without hope. Now, as we long to live out this vision statement, it's important to make sure that we're bridging gap with those that, of those people that live closest to us, those in our own homes and those in our neighborhoods. So this message and small group series is designed to do just that. It's written by a couple of pastors in a church in Colorado. They wrote the material, and I'm going to be quoting from another book they wrote. But before we get into that, let me just give you just a sneak peek of what motivated them to write this material. You know, I think questions drive everything. I, I know it has for me. And if you're in the church world today, there's sure a lot of concern about what's going on. How do we meet the needs? How do we be more effective in our communities? How do we help reach people who today have so little interest in church? Uh, for us, one of those questions that drove me early on was, if our church disappeared, would anybody really care? And it came at a time when our church was growing and we were reaching a lot of lost people and there were just some very cool things happening. And, and yet I was concerned, were we making any difference in our community? And that question launched us into all the externally focused and missional kinds of efforts. And, and, but a question that's been driving us deeper lately is, what would happen if we just got better at the two things Jesus said mattered most? What if we loved God and loved our neighbor? I wanted to begin with that the quote because I, 
I like that question that he asked at the beginning. Would anyone miss our church if we suddenly disappeared? You see, as we long to have a lasting impact in this entire region by sharing Jesus and the hope that he brings, it's important for us to understand if if we want to truly impact others, then we must make sure that we are first impacted by that which Jesus says matters the most. As we tackle what matters the most, we're going to be examining the most basic aspect of what it means to be a Jesus follower, what it means to be a Christian or a disciple of Jesus. Now, I didn't think we could get any more basic than the basic series we just completed on the basics of discipleship. And yet, if we could get any more basic, it's what Jesus said and is recorded in Mark chapter 12. Mark writes this. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And we're going to go on and read the rest of it in just a minute. But what do you see here as we just begin? What, what was Jesus saying is first and foremost important for us to, to focus on? It's that first command to love the Lord your God. And yet Jesus tells us specifically how we are to live out that love for God. It's, it's a love that is all-encompassing. He says to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Do you love God in that way? I hope you do. You see, Jesus calls us to, to more than simply acknowledging that he exists or, or believing that God is real and that he is there and cares for us. He calls us to a commitment of our whole being. Now, embedded in here, he calls us to love God with our, our mind and our heart and our strength. And in many ways, that's what we emphasize over and over again here, being a head, heart, hands follower of Jesus, that we make the conscious decision to follow Jesus with our head, that we have the heart that we want to be changed by Jesus, and that we're hands-on utilizing our strength and our talents and our abilities to serve and to, to share Jesus with others. And so we emphasize that a lot. And yet, there's, a, there's another aspect here, at least the way Mark tells it, that I think is real significant. He says to love the Lord our God with all of our soul. What does it mean to love God with your soul? As I dug into that a little bit more, uh, it's interesting that the original word in the, the Greek manuscript that the New Testament was originally written in, it's this, this word that we get an English equivalent from, psyche. Okay, So to love God with you, your whole psyche, with your whole being, your innermost self. This is a type of love and devotion that the psalmist described. And kind of a go-to psalm for me to talk about this loving God with all of our soul is Psalm 42. I love it. But in Psalm 42, this is how the psalmist describes his love for God. He says, as 
The deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? What do you see? What I see is the psalmist is describing an inner yearning for the completeness that only God can bring. You see, this isn't a love that simply goes through the motions. This is a love that comes from your inner self. It's loving God with all of your soul. I hope that describes your relationship with God. If not, then I think you'll experience an emptiness that the psalmist goes on to describe in verses 3 and 4 when he describes this emptiness without God in your life that's like, a, as some people describe, a God-shaped hole. Listen to how he describes it in verse 5. He says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. You see, this is an emptiness that the psalmist is describing that's only filled with coming to have that personal relationship with Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He's the only one that can bring real, meaningful, sustaining hope into your life. That's the kind of relationship that we long for every person that worships here at Southwest on the weekend and every person that's maybe not yet worshiping here at Southwest on the weekend to know that live in this area. We want them to know this kind of, uh, of relationship, a confidence in knowing Christ that brings fullness and completeness to your life. In fact, we want people to have a hope that's sure. And that they're assured of their eternal, eternal destiny because of what Jesus has done for them and they've responded appropriately. That's why we emphasize often uh, our discovery class. We're going to offer it again this week, Tuesday at 7 p.m. And if you have a, an emptiness in you, if, if you don't have a confidence, an assurance that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. We want to invite you to that class so that you can know with certainty that you're in that relationship with Christ so that you can have that, that innermost emptiness filled up with a relationship with Jesus. You see, it all begins with that hope-filled relationship with Christ. And then that leads us to then want to extend that hope to others. And that's what Jesus says next, what, what else matters most? And in verse 31, he says, the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So here we see Jesus clearly defines the second most important commandment is to love your neighbor. To love your neighbor. Now, the remainder of our time together and throughout the rest of the series, we want to learn what does it mean to live this out? You see, since Jesus said that this is the second of two greatest commandments and this is what matters most, then it seems like it's a pretty big deal to me. And I hope it seems like a pretty big deal to you that we learn what it means to love our neighbor. Now, in many ways, these two commands summarize the totality of what Jesus was all about. 
You know, the gospel writer John, when he introduces the person of Jesus as, as he came to earth, this is how he describes him. And by the way, he, he describes a, a term that's often used about Jesus. It's often only mentioned at Christmas time, but yet it's a, it's a very important term for us to wrestle with. It's this idea of incarnation, that God became flesh. He, became, he, he took on a body in the person of Jesus. That's what it means for the incarnate revelation of God. It's in Christ. This is how the Message Bible describes this big idea of incarnation. In John 1, verse 14, and by the way, let me just back up a minute. I did this first hour too because I think it's important to get the context. John starts his introduction of Jesus describing him as the Word. Now, the first time I read that, I was confused. Like, what is he talking about here? When he's talking about the Word, is he talking about the Bible? Is he talking about the written Word of God? But as I read into this, I realized he wasn't talking about the written Word of God. He was talking about the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. And he starts his introduction to Jesus. says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word is God. And then in verse 14, he describes the word. And by the way, it makes a lot of sense if you substitute the Son of God in there every time you see the word word. But he says, the word of God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I like that. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. I love this idea of Jesus being so personal to us that when he, the Son of God, left heaven and the Father's side and came to earth and he entered our world, that he took on flesh, or as the Message Bible reads here, he became flesh and blood. And he's to be understood so personal that he moved into our neighborhood. Now, as a church, we, we think about as we think about what it means to be the body of Christ, it's important for us, and from time to time we say we're, we're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so as we think of a church family that worships in this location, we need to begin to ask ourselves, what do people that live around this building, in this community and surrounding communities within driving distance of this building. Maybe they go to the YMCA and they drive by this building every week or every day. What do they come to know about us as a church? Do they just see a building? Or do, have they come to, to, to become, to be aware that there's a group of people that are meeting here that are living out what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus, that in an incarnational way, we are the body of Christ in the world today. You see, that's what God calls us to be, that we would personify Jesus to this community. I hope that's what people around us begin to recognize. I was inspired by reading a companion book to this a small group series it's written by the same authors, and it's entitled The Neighboring Church. And it's written by these two authors, these two pastors of a church in Colorado. And the particular church that they serve has done a real good job through the years of being an externally focused church. They're constantly looking for ways that they can serve others within their community. 
So much so that when, when there's a need that arises within that community, it's interesting that city officials actually reach out to the church to see if that need can be met. And I think that's a great testimony of them being the body of Christ. On one occasion, the city where they lived, uh, this is what they said. They said uh, the city manager or the city mayor, whoever it was, uh, official, reached out to them and said they had a problem with one of the residents that lived near the building. The grass in her yard was five feet tall. They had sent the homeowner several letters asking her to take care of her yard, but to no avail. So in a last-ditch effort, they were reaching out to this church. Now, I tend to wonder when I hear something about grasping five feet tall, I thought, okay, that's surely an exaggeration. That's surely hyperbole. But listen to how the author and pastor described it. He said he drove up to the house, and he said they weren't exaggerating. The grass was almost as tall as I was. I knocked on the door, and a woman in her young 30s answered. Standing next to her was a little girl. I learned that this woman had recently survived stage four cancer, and she was taking care of, her nine, of the nine-year-old girl who was in foster care. The woman was tearful and embarrassed about her yard. She said that her health had prevented her from trying to take care of it. So the author goes on to write, my heart broke for her and was happy that our church was going to help. So I gathered a dozen people, and they brought their own equipment. A few hours later, the yard was almost as good as new. He went on to describe that that church took care of that lady's yard for the next year. I was inspired. And then I asked myself this question. If there was a need like that in this area, would local community leaders reach out to Southwest? I hope they would. It's my heart's desire to be that kind of church. Now, I've been encouraged recently. Uh, the superintendent of schools in Springboro has started reaching out to us when there's a, maybe a health issue or some kind of crisis, uh, emergency with a child or even a teacher. Uh, he's reached out when he recognizes that th- there's a need for uh, supernatural help, and he's reached out and called us and said, can you pray? So I'm encouraged that we're a church that he sees that he could reach out to. But yet, I want to keep being that church. In the book, the author says, just when he was about to congratulate himself that they were truly living out what it meant to be an externally focused church, being the hands and feet of Christ, then he thought to himself, if we really were living out what Jesus called us to be, it would have never got to this point. Because he recognized that there were some members of the church that lived in that neighborhood. They should have intervened before it got that far. As I read that example, I was convicted because I thought of a recent experience in my own neighborhood. You see, I'm at that point in life where I quit playing full-court basketball and flag football and even softball because with bifocals, it's hard to track a fly ball. And so... So because I'm not doing some of the things I used to love to do for exercise, uh, I've taken up walking. And so I try to walk two or three miles every day and try to, try to keep active and exercise. And I do a lot of walks in our neighborhood. 
And uh, back in the spring and the summer, I, I noticed that there was one house in our neighborhood. It's a little bit from our house. It's probably a half a mile from our house, but it's part of my walk. That, that I saw that this, this yard's not looking too good. And, and honestly, honestly, I'm starting to be critical of the homeowner. Now, it's not like I've got this impeccable yard, okay? It's, it's not like uh, there couldn't be somebody critical of some weeds in our flower bed, because there, there are. But, but this, this yard, I just thought, was a little bit beyond the pale, and I was just like, yeah, man, they should do something about it. And I was kind of having this thought in my mind every time I'd walk by their house. And then, then one day, I saw a sign in the yard. It was a yard sign, and it was an organization I'd never heard of. So I thought, well, that's interesting. So I, but it looked like a big deal, so I Googled it, and I found out it was an organization to support families that were dealing with a cancer patient. Well, then my heart just sunk, and I thought, here I've been critical. I should have been thinking of ways that I could jump in and help. Now, they've spruced it up a little bit. It looks a little bit better, but I, I still want to follow up and find out how we, as, as a church, can maybe help this family. Well, Jesus calls us to love others as he's loved us. He's called us to love our neighbors as he loved the people that he interacted with. Well, if we look in the Bible, we see how Jesus interacted with others. In fact, I, I like how the Message Bible reads in John 13 and verse 34. Jesus says, let me give you a new command. Love one another. In the same way I loved you, you love one another. Now, the context here, he just finished washing their feet. He met a real need. He says, this is how everyone will recognize that you're in my disciples, when they see the love you have for each other. You see, if we're really serious about following Jesus and, and being his disciples, then we will love each other in practical ways, the way that Jesus called us to love. We'll love each other, the people in the church, in such a way to meet needs. But we won't stop there. We'll take to heart the challenge that Jesus calls us to love also our neighbors. And so I've been asking myself this question, preparing for this message series. If Jesus were to move into my neighborhood, how would he love the people in his home? And how would he love the people that were his neighbors? And I want to ask you during this series to ask yourself that question. If Jesus were to move into your home, how would he love the next door neighbor? I think it's significant that Jesus called us not just to love people, but to love specifically our neighbor. Eric Hoffer gave this quote, it's easier to love humanity as a whole than to love one's neighbor. You see, it's one thing to say, oh, I love people. But then the question is, how about our next door neighbor? Do we love them? You see, then we're starting to get more specific. As a church, we emphasize and we've emphasized throughout our history the importance of loving God and loving people. In fact, we've committed ourselves 
as a church to be a church that in our very essence, we live out what it means to love, serve, and share. In fact, every fall, we take a focus in one of our church-wide small group series to focus on one of those three verbs. What does it mean to love? What does it mean to love God, love people? What does it mean to serve the community around us? What does it mean to share Jesus with others? This year, we're going to focus on that word love. But we're going to really lean into what does it mean to love our neighbor. And we're looking to really grow in that. My hope and prayer is that this isn't simply a fad or a six-week program within the church. It's not how we're rolling it out. We want it to be who we become. We want it to be part of our DNA. That we're a church that's serious about loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're committed to loving our neighbor as ourself. Well, let's see how Jesus did that within the neighborhood of Sea of Galilee, okay? He, he grew up in Nazareth, not too far from the Sea of Galilee, but in the Gospels, we're told that he really set up a home base in Capernaum. And listen to how he interacted with the people around that area. In Matthew 9, verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. By the way, verse 38 is the prayer that I've embraced for myself. Every day at 9.38 p.m., I started praying. I shared this last week, but I've been praying for God to bring more workers into his harvest field, specifically for more volunteers, more servants, more small group leaders here at Southwest. But I'm going to add to that prayer during this series, people that really embrace what it means to be that neighbor that represents Jesus. And our hope is during this series, that we'll take on the heart of Jesus toward our neighbor. You know, in Matthew 9, it says that when Jesus saw the people, he didn't see them as projects. He didn't see them just as a number. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. In fact, the Message Bible says his heart broke for them. We want to begin to see our neighbors as God sees them. And really allow our hearts to go out to them when they're going through difficulty, when they're going through challenges, and be there to support them. In the book, The Neighboring Church, the authors wrote uh, that they began, as they began to really emphasize this focus in their church, people responded in different ways. Some embraced this idea and really tried to, to go to work of being a better neighbor to those around them. But some pushed back. In fact, I found this interesting. One church member sent an email to one of the pastors, and he gave this honest feedback. I know this is what God wants me to do, to love my neighbor. I know this is serious. I know we should be doing it, so I think I'm going to move out of the neighborhood I'm in, out to some acreage where I don't have any neighbors, and then I don't have to worry about it. Well, it's honest. I don't think that's the right response, but it's honest. 
And if you're tempted to think, as I start talking about loving your neighbor, you think, well, Roger, you don't know my neighbor. Well, that's probably the very person that God's calling you to love. And so the challenge is not to move to a different neighborhood with better neighbors. The challenge is to allow our hearts to move toward the neighbors we already have. Remember, Jesus was very specific. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. So as we just intro this series, as we just begin going down that road together, if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, then we need to understand how God has loved ourselves. You know, the, the same John that wrote the introduction of Jesus moving into the neighborhood also wrote some letters to some early Christians. Those are in the back of the New Testament. They're called 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And in 1 John chapter 4, this is how John describes God's love for each and every one of us. He says, my beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. The person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God because God is love. So you can't know him if you don't love. This is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the kind of love we are talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage that they've done to our relationship with God. As we conclude our time together, this intro into this series, and yet prepare for a time of communion, Let's remember and reflect on the love that God has made available to us in Jesus Christ. And let's remember the hope that we have that's only possible because of the love that God has shown us in Jesus. As I think about God's love for me and as you think about God's love for you, aren't you glad that God just, he, he didn't wait for us to get our act together to start loving us? That he didn't say, I'll love you when you start being lovable. That's not God's approach. God loves us, not because we're lovable, but God loves us because he is so loving. And God took the first step. He initiated. He sent his son to this earth, not for a bunch of lovable people, but for a bunch of people that are tough to love. I think that's important for us to remember when maybe we're challenged to love somebody that's not that lovable. But every time I'm tempted to think, well, this guy's just a little prickly. He's just, this, this girl, this lady's just a little tough to love and, and show kindness to. Every time I'm tempted to think that, I have to think back. And I don't have to think too far. For me, yesterday, I can think back to one time when I, reacted to my wife in a way that wasn't real lovable. Or times that I've said or done things in the past or maybe even recently that's not very lovable. 
And then I remember, God loves me in spite of myself. And as we take communion, let's just soak up. Because if we're going to love others as God loves us, let's first of all understand how much God loves us. That he sent his son to die for us when we were far away. When we had covered up our life with mess that sin brings. And in the midst of all that, God says, I love you so much, I can't bear the thought of being separated from you. And I'm gonna send my son to die for you, to create a bridge so that you can have a relationship with me. Let's remember that we worship a God who is so loving that he will love us in spite of ourselves at times. Let's think about that during this time of communion. And let's just relish and celebrate the love that God has for us. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you, and we just, we're blown away by what a good God you are, what a loving God you are. And Father, we know that before we can love others, we must first respond to your love. We must first accept that you're a God that loves us in spite of our worst self. And so thank you. And thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. Thank you that through Jesus, we can now be made new. We can be made right with you. Help us during this time of communion just to just to soak that up, just to think about it, just to celebrate in our heart what you've done for us in Jesus. And yet, Father, help us examine how we've been doing lately and what matters most, loving you and loving our neighbor. Help this be a time of celebration, a time of reflection, a time of refocus. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen.